Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to another episode of the Hockey News on the E-Podcast. I'm Jacob Stoller from the Hockey News alongside Justin Cohn from the Fort Wayne Journal Gazette, and there's a third person. If you're watching video, you can already see that, and that is DJ Abasala, the Wheeling Nailers broadcaster. But you know, I just met DJ, this fine man, about ten minutes ago. The man that knows him the most is Justin Cohn. Justin, tell tell us about our guest here before we let him say a word. Yeah, I've sat next to this gentleman for I guess uh, what about ten years, and uh, he may deny it, but I feel like I've had a real impact in his life. Okay. There is one one weekend in particular, and I, I've probably embellished this story a lot, and I'm going to continue to. Right. But uh, he was in Fort Wayne, liked a girl, uh, needed a restaurant recommendation. I sent him to a nice Italian restaurant. I believe they're still together today. I believe maybe. Maybe they're engaged. I don't know. DJ can tell us. Uh, and I think that same weekend is when DJ famously punched the plexiglass that sits that's right next to me, which is actually supposed to separate me from the broadcasters, by the way. So he punched that, broke it. So now there is the thickest pane of plexiglass you've ever seen. It has been DJ proof. And then the part that I really like to tell is like after that game, I was just joking, but I like called him on the bus. I was like, do I come to your house and, and destroy your living room, sir? Like, how dare you do that? Uh, so anyway, so DJ, the the broadcaster for the Wheeling Nailers, we've sat next to each other for a very long time and uh, really happy to have him here. How are you doing, DJ? I'm doing great. That was pretty on the money. And yes, Mindy and I are still together. We are engaged. So Yep, uh, that was quite the weekend up in Fort Wayne. Uh, definitely one that left a lasting impression on a lot of people, and I love it. We've been going there, and I've gotten a chance to hang around you since 2012 when the Comets came into the ECHL. That was my second year in the league, and, man, there have been so many incredible moments that have happened between the two teams, and it's just fun to be able to build those friendships with you, with Shane, with Sprout, with everybody out there. Uh, so thank God you guys are together, though, because can you imagine if Justin just, like, threw it out there and it's like, no, we, we – we made it past the first date, but that's it. But uh, wait, let me ask. Uh, I got to uh, ask, Justin. I got to ask because I don't know how many people know it. Maybe I'm unaware of the most legendary story, but can we get to the plexiglass story quickly? <laughs> like, you, got, like you, can't, you can't just throw that out to introduce him as part of what identifies him and then not tell me what drove you, DJ, to go absolutely bonkers on that sheet of glass. <laughs> so uh, I have been one that's been known to wear my heart on my sleeve, and I am very emotional, good, bad or indifferent. I'll jump up and down if we score a big goal. They saw last year in their building in game seven overtime. Uh, at the same time, if things don't go my way, I've, I've been known to throw a water bottle or two in my day. Uh, not a lot of room to do that in Fort Wayne. But we were up three to one going into the third period. And Fort Wayne had battled back to tie at three. And we're talking a mid-March game. So we're talking a lot of implication for playoffs on the line. And our penalty kill was drop dead awful that year. We're talking 75% at best worst penalty kill in the 31 year history of the team. And the team had been extremely disciplined all night that night, only one time to the PK before the end of the game. And then we took a completely stupid preventable penalty 
with just over two minutes to go in the game. And I said, I swear, if we get scored on on this power play and we lose the game because of this, I'm just going to completely lose it. And sure enough, the Comets scored a power play goal, at which point I threw myself up against the door to my right. And they went up four to three. They get the win. And as the buzzer sounds, it was not a punch. It was a slap, but it was a very flimsy piece of plexiglass. So I turned and took a swat at the thing and the piece of it just cracked, fell right off. And so now, as Justin said, they put a much sturdier one that if someone ran at it full steam, they would probably get a concussion if they even tried to. But uh, yeah, that's that's the legend of the plexiglass right there. I mean, I, I got to say, though, like, I love my seat at the Allen Kelly War Memorial Coliseum because I'm right next to the visiting broadcaster. And so, I first of all, it, it, like, I it's like I have play-by-play in my ear from the visiting broadcaster during the entire game, which is a lot of fun. But everybody's so different. You know, like, I know DJ is going to be boisterous. He's going to be reacting to everything. There are other broadcasters who come in, you know. They might be a little bit more tame, you know, other, it's just other guys you could sort of mess with when they're on the air. So my, my particular seat is a lot of fun, but DJ has been one of the most uh, fun broadcasters to sit next to just because of the emotion that he has. And I, I wanted to ask you, uh, you said um, you've been calling games since when for Wheeling? 2011. This is my 12th season. Okay. So does that make you, I, I, I'm going to guess here that that makes you number two in seniority amongst ECHL broadcasters or am I off? I think I'm four or five. I know that Matt Melzack of Toledo's got over a thousand. Tommy Daniels of Allen just hit a thousand this year. So did Jason Mouse in Wichita. Uh, Alex Reed has been in and out of the league. So his number is kind of a weird one because he came to Wheeling a year before me and actually paved the way to get me into wheeling in 2011 so i don't know where his games are but i'm only i'm at 893 right now i'll hit 900 in a couple of weeks so i'm at least in the four maybe five range at the moment but the interesting thing is that at least a couple of those guys like jason malls you know they came into the league after you already in the, in the echl right so yes in terms of in terms of echl seniority you might be even further up then yeah i guess i'm two or three only behind melzak and reader Uh, so, uh, you know, a lot of people probably don't, you know, necessarily understand uh, all the different hats that ECHL broadcasters wear. Uh, can you tell us a little bit, you know, some of your other responsibilities? I'm assuming that you're doing all the media relations. You're probably the traveling secretary for the team, maybe booking the hotel rooms. I don't know what goes into your job that maybe some people don't necessarily understand. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's definitely one of the things. And I think it's a fascinating business because it kind of all depends on what your team looks like. It depends on what hats you've worn and mine have kind of changed and some have been added, subtracted through the years. So it's a constantly evolving role. Obviously my favorite thing that I do is call the game. There's nothing better than that. So that is always going to be number one on the, on the list. I feel like media relations is always going to be right there with the broadcaster because it goes hand in hand. So yes, I do the media relations for the team. I write our game recaps. I'm posting stories. I'm reaching out to media outlets, you know, trying to get us some coverage or receiving requests and trying to help coordinate those. One of the areas that I also do with us, which I really learned how to do it well over the years, this is something that I had no clue when I what I was doing when I got here because I've never done it before. But it's the community relations side, and it's such a cool and rewarding 
area to work with because you're able to develop some really fascinating relationships in the community. We have a celebrity server event tomorrow night where we're going to be raising money for the St. Baldrick's Foundation, which is an organization that helps kids conquer cancer. So to be able to make that sort of an impact on people is tremendous. You also get to work with some of the local schools, whether it's the young kids who were like, oh, wow, look at this. There's a pro hockey player to come into my school and I'm only seven, eight years old and they love it. Or we also, I just had it today, we have the booze cruise and you lose program where we go to local high schools and talk about not drinking and driving, talk about drugs, alcohol, that type of thing, try and get them on the correct path, not only now, but as they continue to progress in life. So you can really make impacts those ways. Uh, we do the Salvation Army has their red kettle drive every winter time leading to the holidays. So we have the players go out, ring the bells for that. They are also our biggest partner on our teddy bear toss at that time of the year as well. So there's a lot of really cool things that we do. So I handle that side of things. As you mentioned, Justin, I'm also the travel guy. So I'm booking the hotels, the buses. The one thing I haven't done yet is the flights, but I'm sure that's going to be, you know, to come down the road. So I did meals this year for the first time. So that's part of it. Um, I did social media for a little bit, both when I started, when it was just in its infancy and also during the COVID year. But now that's part of our marketing job. So Carrie handles that side of things. Uh, I tried my hand at corporate sales for a couple of years and boy, did I stink at that. And they quickly said, let's get him out of that. And I think that's when I really started to figure out the community side and be able to excel in that area of the job. And, and I, sorry, Jake, just one thing, you know, I've gone to some of those school trips and in your experience, do players generally really like doing that sort of thing? Because in my experience, sometimes players really, uh, you know, really embrace doing some of the charitable endeavors and others are kind of like, I just want to play hockey. Well, and you know what? That's something I had to learn over the years because at the beginning, it was kind of a trial by fire type of thing. There was a point in the middle where I had some good captains and they were able to be the leaders. Like when I had Shane Baker, he was the first guy to tell me I want to do everything under the sun. I had that with Aaron Titkin as well, who was a great defenseman for us. And he was the best community guy I've ever had. I have that this year with the likes of Peter Laviolette, Tyler Drevich, Brad Barone. But one of the things that I do every year at the beginning of the year is I actually put together a survey for the players. And we, we I have a great head coach in Derek Army who was a fan favorite here because of how he was able to interact with those fans and be able to get out and be a personality and not just a hockey player. So we tell them at the beginning of the year, you are going to be doing a community event or multiple community events this year. So be ready for it. But I give them a survey and say, what do you like doing the best? Do you prefer to go do youth hockey? Do you want to go on to radio shows? Do you want to do school visits? Do you want to do charitable type of stuff? And I make them rank it in order. That way I can put the proper person. If it's somebody who may be there from Quebec and they were in a very French part of the province. And so they're just starting to learn English. I'm not going to send them to read across America week. That would be completely foolish and a complete jerk of me. So I'm not going to do that. So I want to put them into something that they're going to enjoy and something that they're going to really get into and it, be able to take that appearance to the next level. You know, we kind of touched on a bit there about, you know, you bring a lot of emotion to the broadcast you know, you're unafraid to get on the officials and where arenas where the benches are on opposite sides. Do you ever get in trouble? Like, what are the boundaries and like about what you can and can't do or talk about? Clearly, you're still calling games after punching some glass. But I mean, has there ever been that line drawn for you? 
Uh, I've come close, but knock on wood, somehow I have dodged. What's that? What was the closest he came? I've gotten more. I've not been fined yet, which is kind of incredible. There are a couple times where I was. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. You've never been fined. Like, (laughs) yep. There, there are a couple that I thought, okay, yep. But usually when those happen, which I would say there've been two instances, two instances of that where I've come really close. I pretty much ate it beforehand. And I told, I, I basically wrote my apology letter beforehand and said, I'm sorry, go easy on me. And luckily they did. So that was good. But yeah, if you start to tow it, you usually get a, a nice letter, uh, an email and saying, hey, this is what we heard. Don't ever do this again or you'll get fined. So I think, you know, sometimes because of your seniority, you might get a mulligan every now and again when you start to tow it. And they, and I think the league starts to get to know who the normal, you know, suspects are and, and who to watch out for. And I think at the end of the day, you know, as long as you don't go too crazy, I think people always like passion. I think that's something that the fans here appreciate. I think, Justin, that's something you appreciate from me. So, you know, you just kind of got to, you know, watch your P's and Q's every once in a while. I had actually uh, heard a little bit of DJ before I was even covering the ECHL because I had heard some bombastic goal calls from when he was in junior hockey with the uh, Lewiston Maniacs. Uh, I did ask DJ what his favorite goal call was and uh it was well you can set it up for us it was uh what was it game seven against the Reading Royals in 2016 yeah that was my second ever game seven I had done a game seven in Toledo the year before and unfortunately lost in overtime so it was still one of those things that I had never really I mean I had done before but now this was ultimately my first time being on the winning side of it and I mean game seven what an experience overtime game seven there's not a lot of people who can say they've done it. I've done three overtime game sevens now. I'm lucky enough to be on the winning side of it twice. And I'm, I get reminded of this call time after time. I'm so happy that it went the way that it did. I'm thankful, first of all, that we have the loudest goal horn on planet Earth because I've learned over the years not to try and talk over the horn and just let it do its thing. And I think that's something that when you're working with young broadcasters, they just want to jump all over the call. It's game seven. But to actually be able to hear the horn and hear the crowd noise and to let that speak it before making the call. And then obviously after that, as you'll hear on the clip where I just completely come in and punch out the name of the game seven winner. And it was just something that I guess has lived on since it happened now going on seven years ago. Absolutely. Look at the clip set up here. Curtain comes flying in at the right circle into the slot. Brace a drive. Blocked. Rebound. Willette scrambles around. It's loose at the top of the net. And they score!
You see, I have it in my head that during that silence, like DJ's just like running around, high-fiving everybody, like chest bumping them. Like, or were you like really focused on what was going on in the ice? I was jumping up and down. There's no doubt about that. But at the same time, and, and luckily Jamie Pecklitz just held that horn for as long as humanly possible so that I had at least a second or two to compose myself because like that's a huge moment and you don't want to botch that call. So you want to make sure you know exactly where you're going with it. So I had that opportunity to just come out and blast away. Let me ask you a question. As a, you mentioned, the favorite thing you do is the broadcast. Do you have moments where you dream of making that call and how do you, do you practice it frequently? How do you approach that as like with, in terms of the craft as a broadcaster? Uh, it's definitely something that you dream of. Like I said, I, I didn't think I would ever get the chance to do two overtime game sevens. That's pretty wild. Um, I don't think I necessarily practice for that just because you don't know how it's going to happen. And in both cases, like it's scary. If you look at our game seven winner last year, sorry, Justin, I know this probably kills you to keep on listening to this, but if you look at the game seven goal last year in Fort Wayne and that goal against Reading from 2016, they are so eerily similar. They both are net mouth scrambles where a guy just reaches in, grabs it and chucks it through where you, it's not like he's coming down on a rush. It's not like this obvious thing that, Oh, here it is. Here's going to be the call. You have to be on your toes ready for it. No matter what. I think the one scenario, if I ever had to script it, would be if I ever got a chance to call a championship. And I thought about this a little bit because we did go to the final that year in 2016 against Allen. The conference final was actually game seven, but it was easy because we were up five to two. So I had a couple of breaks in the third period to go, okay, how do I want to finish this one off and send us off to the Kelly Cup final? That was simple. But this is a team that's never won a championship in the 31 years that it's been here. So that one, I feel like I almost have to unless – Goodness gracious, maybe it's an overtime win and the magic happens and whatever happens, whatever goes, goes. But I feel like that would be one of those where you really almost have to say something that makes it almost like a storybook way to go out because that's going to be the clip that's going to be remembered for years and years. What's the pipeline like between Wheeling and Wilkes-Barre Scranton? It's one of the oldest and seemingly most reliable affiliations from afar, in the East, like what we would think in the ECHL. It's incredible. And the hands-on aspect from Pittsburgh, too. The fact that we're only an hour away from Pittsburgh, they are down here on a regular basis. And that's always been the case. Since I first got here in 2011, we had Jason Bottrell coming down here. He was their associate general manager at the time. Bill Guerin was the player development coach. He was constantly coming down here, getting on the ice, not only with their contracted players, too, but also with our ECHL contracted players and showing them, hey, you know what? If you make enough of an impact, you can move up the ladder through this organization. And that's something that's been cool to see because we've had both sides of that equation where we've had a player like Tom Kunakel, who came here as an NHL contracted player. And he was hurt most of the previous year. Things weren't quite going his way in Wilkes-Barre. That was the 2013-14 season. And he came down here and he was taught how to become a really good overall player. I'll never forget we were playing a playoff series in Greenville that year, and we were up by a goal with six minutes left, and we were actually penalty killing. 
And he was out there blocking shots. He was not a skilled guy at that point. Great. You had all these points in the OHL. That's fabulous. But the fact that you're out there sacrificing your body to try and win a playoff game, that's what's going to stick out to be able to move you up the ladder in this organization. You're not going to be a top six in Pittsburgh. Sorry, it's not happening. They've got Malkin. They've got Crosby. They've got Gensel. You're not going to be a top six guy. You need to figure out how to be that role player. But we've also seen that with ECHL contracted players. Bobby Farnham started here as an ECHL contract, earned his way up to Wilkes-Barre, then under Pittsburgh. Same with the goaltenders. Casey DeSmith is up there right now. He started as an ECHL contracted guy. So it's something that we take a lot of pride in here. It's one of our biggest recruiting factors is that Pittsburgh is so involved with what we do. And I think the players appreciate that because it feels like they are that close to getting that next step up the ladder. With DJ here, it's only fitting that our team of the week is the Wheeling Nailers. Wheeling is, you know, fifth in the Central Division with a 25-31-5-0 and and record. They've got one player actually on an NHL contract in Jordan Frasca, who signed an ELC with Pittsburgh last March. He had a cup of coffee in the AHL of Wilkes-Barre, but he's been with you guys for the last chunk with 11 points in 34 games. What can you tell us about his development this season, DJ? Yeah, it's been a lot of fun to watch Jordan as he's come down here. And he started the year hurt, so he didn't make his pro debut until the middle of December. And that's extremely hard. You're talking about a player who came out of the Ontario Hockey League. So he's super young, coming into a league with grown men. I mean, we're looking at some teams that we play against who have players in their early 30s. That's something that you're playing against teenagers the year before to make that transition is a wow factor. You have players that are already up to speed because they've been playing for the first, let's say, 15, 20 games of the year. And it's been fun to see Jordan. I mean, we've seen his shot come leaps and bounds and the confidence to use that, especially in the recent games. He's now on a three-game goal streak. But his overall game, his willingness to go to the net, bang around, sacrifice his body, play the defensive side of the game. That's what we were talking about just a minute ago, where you really need to become that overall all-around player to be able to move up the levels and to get that recognition from Pittsburgh. And Jordan's done a really nice, a nice job of that. I'm excited to see him go from year one to year two next year. Hopefully he's in the American Hockey League for that, to be able to see that development continue and to see him continue to rise up to become that player that he was in the OHL. Uh, the Nailers also have some players on American Hockey League deals, including Tommy Napier, a goaltender, forward Chris Ortiz, and forward Brooklyn Kalmikoff, who's a player I really like. How have those guys progressed this season and any other AHL guys that have been there? Yeah, absolutely. We had seen Tommy uh, when he first came out of college at Ohio State. He actually spent all of last, well, most of last year up in Wilkes-Barre, Scranton. So to come down here, and he's had some really shining moments. Uh, he had a great game against Norfolk a few weeks ago where he was the difference in a 2-1 shootout win. So that's been encouraging to see. Ortiz, a really exciting puck-moving defenseman, but he also is very strong in his own zone. Kalmakov, electric forward. I don't know if I've seen someone be able to have so much shiftiness in tight quarters as he does. But we also, like you've said, have had other players who have come down here. Josh Maniscalco, who was here way longer than he probably should have been. He was completely dominant, was leading the league in defensive scoring. Shoot, he was still top 20 in D scoring maybe about two weeks ago, and then he's finally gotten knocked out. We haven't seen this guy except for a little brief time in January, pretty much since Christmas time. So that's just how dominant he was in the couple months that he was there. But then we go into the players like we talked about, these ECHL players, and Justin Adamo, holy cow, what a find he was. Uh, went to Robert Morris University for three years. Their program went underwater. They're going to be coming back here next year. But he had a transfer 
for his senior year at RIT. That had to be extremely difficult for him. But we found him. Big 6'6", six, six dude, 250 pounds. He plays that way, too. 21 goals with us. Got on the radar, and now he already has five goals with Wilkes-Barre-Scranton in the American Hockey League. I've also got to give Cam Housinger some love. He's been up in the AHL this year with Milwaukee and Iowa. So we've had some really nice players that we've been able to start here, put them on the radar, and get them up to that next level, which is really cool to see. One quick question on Josh Maniscalco, because I think we feel like we are the good luck charm for him because we made him our prospect of the week and he immediately gets called up. But, uh, you know, one of the things we talked about with him at the time was that this was a big year for him, you know, right? Like he, this was the last year of the contract, as I recall. And, you know, do you have any insight? Like, you know, is the organization, you know, really seeing what they have with him at this point? I mean, obviously he's up in the AHL, so they must be. But has he done something different this year that, that made him stick, do you think? Yeah, you know what? I think he's had three completely different years on that contract, too, which is really interesting to see. His first year was the COVID year, which is always you look at it as a bizarre year. And Wilkes-Barre, the AHL as a whole, for that matter, they were basically just playing games to play games. There was no playoffs. There was a very abbreviated schedule. You were playing the same three teams over and over and over again until you're blue in the face. And I think you only got about seven or eight games up at the AHL level that year. So a lot of it was just being a sponge and taking in what you could. Then he came here last year and dominated. ECHL, all-rookie team, all-ECHL second team, just a terrific player, so offensive. And I think this year... They knew that they had his offensive part of the game, but they wanted to continue to develop his defensive side of the game. So he was able to still continue putting points up here at a rapid rate, but you saw his defensive game grow. And I think that was the biggest X factor because we've seen so many offensive defensemen here in previous years that I've been here. Mike Ratchuk, Matthew Mayoni, uh, Kevin Schultz, but they want you again. They have Chris Letang in Pittsburgh. They don't need you to be a one-dimensional offensive defenseman. You need to play both sides of the puck. So I think that allowed Maniscalco to get even more of a look and now a stay up in the American Hockey League as opposed to having to shovel back and forth between the two levels. Let's quickly get to our prospect of the week here, who's Brett Sapley, the Trois-Rivier Lions. Signed to an HL deal with Laval, 24 years old, originally drafted the seventh round by the Canadians in 2018. Justin, why is Stapley our prospect of the week? Uh, well, Brett Stapley is one of the more, uh, I, I'd say, uh, exciting players in the league that people are not really talking about. Uh, maybe a little bit because he's with Trois Riviere, a team that hasn't done particularly well this year. Uh, he's a rookie, won a national championship with Denver, seventh round draft pick of the Canadians in 2018. And I tell you, I mean, he is an assist machine. You know, I don't know if he's, Nicholas Backstrom at this level, somebody like that. But if you watch him, I mean, he is just so exciting. He will make some uh, amazing stick handling moves. You know, the kind of guy that's going to put the puck through the defense of his legs, get it on the other side, then send a cross ice pass, uh, usually for Beauregard, and then it's a goal. So very exciting player, not very big, um, but, uh, you know, I think only 5'10", about 170 pounds. So not very big. He's certainly not going to be real physical with you. But to borrow DJ's word, uh, a lot of shiftiness coming into the offensive zone and very difficult to contain. So really like watching what he's done. Um, he has eight goals, team leading 42 points in 45 games this season. So obviously doing a lot from the assist uh, standpoint. One thing I wanted to mention, because I've said this before, he was one of those uh, 
British Columbia Hockey League products. And I feel like we are seeing more and more of those, especially in this league over the last few years. I think people are really looking beyond just the Q and the OHL and really seeing um, some of the value in these players coming from the BCHL. And he's one of those guys. Um, uh, Anthony Beauregard was the guy that I mentioned. He's uh, often the beneficiary of Stapley's uh, passes, and he's uh, uh, done a really good job in putting those away this year. Absolutely. Um, I guess what's interesting about him is he's a minus 22. And we kind of talked about this. And DJ, actually, as we're talking here, he'd probably be a perfect person to answer this. Do you see much stock in plus minus? Yes and no. I feel like it is very much a team stat. So there's that side of it. But there are players that can stick out. Like with my team, for example, like you mentioned the record earlier, we're five games under 500. But we have guys in David Drake and Gino Estevez who are both plus double digits. So that's something that's very interesting to see. Or, you know, you can look at a team like a Florida who is very five on five dependent. They don't score a lot of power play goals for as good as they are, which is kind of crazy to say. But so if they have someone who's maybe on the lower side of it, you're like, hmm, I don't know. That maybe raises a red flag a little bit. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I talk about plus minus all the time. I, I don't like it, but this is a guy that can be one of those exceptions to the rule. He's not on a great team. He's on a team that has had a ton of turnover from the coaches to the players. We've talked about some of this before. Some of it's political. Some of it is guys going to Europe. Some of it is competing with the LNAH. So there's been a lot of factors with Trois Riviere, but he does so well on the power play. Um, I mean, he's just a machine out there. I, I thought I had the numbers here, um, but he, he basically is putting up almost all of his points on the power play. So sometimes you have to to weigh the risk reward with a guy. And I'm not saying that he's necessarily one of these guys, but you know, a little bit of a defensive liability. I can sacrifice that if the guy's going to put up 40 points on the power play. So we certainly see a lot of guys like that. But uh, again, you know, he's getting a ton of ice time on a, a team that's not going to make the playoffs. And I think he's doing a lot of really good things for a rookie out of the college ranks. I, I think there's no benefit because of the first thing that not maybe no benefit. I don't see much value in it just because of the first point DJ made. It's such a team stat. So I don't really know. Like if you, if your team has bad goaltending, or like a, a stretch where they're onto their third string or whatever it may be. Even if it's a healthy lineup, like you could be behind an amazing goalie. So it kind of covers warts and and makes you know meaningless numbers look shiny. That's just my opinion. Yeah, I mean it's a team stat for sure, but you could also sometimes players, you know, they stand out. You know, like like I, this is a bad example, but Fort Wayne's got a guy named Matt Bowden, and Fort Wayne has a roster of a lot of plus guys some negative guys and he was like a negative a minus 18 for a long time and there's just like there was no way around it that meant he was doing poor things defensively so it is more of a guideline than a rule but 100 you're right it is mostly a team stat do you cite it on the broad i assume it's still in both your articles and broadcasts it's probably cited though still right understandably there's not too much data available i still use it if that's what you're asking i don't use it a ton but, you know, I feel like it's a stat. It's available to me, especially sometimes with defensemen. I will use it. But I do think it's important to understand the context. And not everybody does use the context with that. DJ? Yeah, I think Justin's right. I think if there's a point where it makes sense to bring it up, then I, I definitely think you do. I think one of the interesting things, just to double back on Stapley, too, and you look at Trois-Rivières, that was an almost all-Quebec team last year. 
So the fact that now this year they've started to expand a little bit more, the fact that he's a British Columbia guy going in there, I'm sure that's a different bird to learn as well, is now you're going into a very French atmosphere, probably hasn't been part of that in his life, at least, you know, going through BCHL and college. And and like Justin mentioned, too, not only the BCHL getting more looks, but also, and you are the first one to see this up in the fort, Justin, but the Canadian university guys, I mean, there's a factory out of UNB who won the university cup again this year. So you're seeing more and more of those players who don't want to necessarily just run right out of major junior and turn pro. They want to say, okay, you know what, let's get a degree under the belt and see if we can then make the jump to the pro game. Let's talk fighting here a bit, Justin. Hey, let's get a couple, a couple minutes before we, we end her off. Yeah, that's actually a great segue because one thing when you get these college guys, they're not always so used to all the fighting and they they like to unleash that aggression when they get to the pros. It's like, hey, I can finally fight. Uh, but I wanted to bring something up while you were here because people have been asking me about this rule, which a lot of people forgot about, that the ECHL has the rule where if you fight 10 times during a season, you get a suspension. It's rule 23-7. Uh, it started, I believe it was four years ago. Um, so far this year, there's only been, I believe, two players who have hit that 10 fight mark. That's Justin uh, Natchbar of uh, Greenville. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. And Nico Blatchman of Norfolk. Uh, DJ, first of all, I know you like fighting as much as I do. I won't bring up the goaltending fight a couple weeks ago. But uh, what do you think of that rule? And have you seen any change in the mentality of guys since we started trying to cap the fighting in the ECHL? You can bring up the goalie fight from two years ago. I'm fine with that. With Francois Brassard beat Kevin Carr. How about that? I've had two game seven overtime wins and two goalie fights in my career. Like, that's pretty nuts. Um, I've always, I grew up with it. I grew up in Portland, Maine with the, you know, the Bash brothers, Kevin Kaminsky and Kerry Clark. They were complete, you know, lunatics with the Portland Pirates. And you know what? Fans loved every single bit of it. And I still am one of those people where look around the arena. People are all up and they're into it when players are fighting. I know there's a safety element. Believe me, I totally get that. But this is something that people still enjoy. I think the biggest, there, there are a couple of things. I think obviously they've definitely limited the staged aspect of it. You don't see two guys that can't play the game just line up and go. And that's literally the only thing they're there for. So I think they've eliminated that part out of the game. And now they're also working on the part of clean hit versus not clean hit and whether or not those have to be decided. I think I'm not huge totally on the, the 10 fight rule and a couple of reasons for that. Number one, I think fighting, it's not completely phasing itself out, but because of how much emphasis there is on skill, you don't see as many guys, even if you didn't have a cap, Maybe what a handful of players might go towards that 10, 15. But the other thing is that once guys start to get past five, and especially when they're in that eight, nine range, they start to almost, you look at them and, and they pick and choose when they want to go. And that's kind of a really strange scenario where you'll have players that are asking them, do you want to go? No, I don't want to blow my 10th fight here or you know, they're trying to egg people on. It leads to a kind of an uncomfortable situation watching and seeing how they decide rather than letting things dictate themselves based on what's happening on the ice. Uh, see, I personally think it's such such a dumb rule. Like, I went back 
yesterday and looked at my reporting as to when they made that rule. And you're 100% right. A big thing was to get rid of the one-dimensional enforcer. But everybody loves the fight. The league will be the first to tell you it's a business. It's entertainment. We're here to put butts in the seats. And just look at two weeks ago. Goalie fight. I know it's a little bit different. But what happened? It made news all over the globe. I mean, it's on everything. So why you would want to curtail that for any reason other than safety is a little bit beyond me. But, you know, we still got these guys running around. You know, we got Robido doing his thing. We got Blacksman doing their thing. It's like, okay, let everybody have a fighter. We've actually increased the roster size since they put in this rule. So it would have made all the sense in the world to increase the roster size before they put in this rule so that you could have another spot for that one-dimensional fighter if you want them. So to me, I just don't personally get it. I think it's the minor leagues. We need to get butts in the seats. Everybody likes it. If you want to waste a roster spot on a guy who can't skate, that's on you. <laughs> but that's just my personal feeling. on it. So we actually saw Blatchman a few weeks ago. That is an interesting specimen of a human being right there. And actually, it's funny. because, And you know what? Props to the dude. Like, he is beloved. In Norfolk. I mean, they absolutely are in love with that guy. And sweet. Cool. That's what you like to see. You like to have fans embrace players. Why not? But when he came here, he was on nine. So we were kind of talking like, okay, you know, is he going to take, you know, is he going to go for it on the Saturday? Maybe so he gets a Sunday off. Like, when's he going to, you know, go for the, when does he want to go for that 10th one? We were all trying to figure that out. But it, it is, it honestly, it's the number one identity crisis in this sport. Because like you said, they don't really want to promote, and this is not just the ECHL, it's the American League, this is the NHL. They don't want to go out of their way to promote it. because, And I think the player safety aspect is the, is the overarching thing. I, I don't think violence is, is what it is. But when it does happen, I think they kind of just step back and they're like, well, that's not the worst thing in the world that could have happened there. And, and like you look at the interactions, too. I, I said it because we were playing you guys uh, the week after it happened where Kochetkov scored a goal for the Chicago Wolves and Poirier had the fight for the Texas Stars, both goalies. Right. And you looked at the two teams' Twitter reactions and Poirier's fight outdid Kochetkov's goal by 5,000. So it's like, well, <laughs> I think that tells you all you need to know about what people want to see. And I think you may even start, I mean, you saw Flurry try and go at Bennington a few weeks ago. We're in, they say, Instagrammable is the word of the day, where you're in an Instagrammable society, viral, let's go viral, is a popular thing. And I think especially with the goalies, where now if they see, ooh, I'm a, this might be my chance to do it. This might be my chance to get my 15 seconds of fame if I go down and get a goalie fight. So you may see them want to do it more just to have that be their moment of glory. Totally agree. Totally agree. Like nobody really knew who Ryan Fanti was, you know, amongst the general hockey population. But now everybody seems to know who he was because he dropped the gloves. So I, I agree with you. For sure. Hey, well, DJ, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Hope to have you on again. This was awesome. And for everyone listening, guys, thank you so much. Let us know what you thought, and we'll be sure to bring DJ and maybe other broadcasters as well on to appear. I'm honored. Thank you so much to both of you for having me. Jacob, it's great to meet you. Coney, it's always a blast to chat with you. Awesome. Appreciate it, man.